scripture reading and Old Testament reading uh, from the book of Numbers. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a brown snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now reading from the Gospel of John. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Would you pray with me? O God, may the words that proceed from my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you this day, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I came to McLean Baptist for the church-wide interview weekend, I remember John Adams asking me a question at the lunch Q&A that sounded something along the lines of this. What was the worst thing that you have ever been punished for? What he did not ask is what I was punished for most frequently, and that answer is whining. I guess I did not see much value in much of anything as a younger person because I was always complaining about something. I wore out the pages of the whining book that my mother bought me to read as punishment, or in her mind, as an alternative approach to dealing with my whining. That book still sits on the shelf at my mother's home, and it is tattered to pieces after being read and reread. I detested that book. I would huff and puff like the big bad wolf when it was flashed before my eyes after a whining episode. Reading about the repentant whining girl apologizing to the triumphant parents just fanned the flame of frustration that I was already having. Other than being grounded from a cell phone, 
That might have been the worst punishment that I remember regularly receiving. I'm sure that the Israelites would have given anything to wake up to whining books scattered all over the ground where that manna had laid once before because after their third whining episode in the wilderness, instead they find snakes, poisonous ones, as a matter of fact, that bit them and killed some. The scripture says that they detested that miserable food that God was using to sustain them. It was, as if, it was as if they were upset that God had not left them chocolates on their pillows, but rather cans of sardines. So they complained. Now the story does not say that God sent these snakes to punish the Israelites. So the snakes and the complaining may not have correlated at all. But the Israelites believed that they did because they asked Moses to pray to God in repentance on their behalf. But God did not take the snakes away. Instead, God gifted healing to the people when they were bitten. They didn't escape the dangers of the snakes, but they were not forgotten by God. God looked after them nonetheless. While this passage today is the lectionary text, it's also a passage that I shared at the Sunrise Senior Living Community in a Bible study on magic in the Bible. In the story, there are elements of a prevalent magical healing practice of that time called sympathetic magic, whereby a victim would look upon the object that ailed them, even in hopes that they would be healed. It seems here that in our text today, God uses a similar notion to heal the Israelites. For God tells Moses to place a bronze snake on a pole so that those who look upon it will live. This command may come across to some of us as rather odd because other parts of the Old Testament seems to look down upon statues and idols. Well, there were carvings and statues welcomed in early Judaism, but those were not worshipped as deities themselves. Actually, this pole, or at least a replica of it, remained in the temple for multiple years after this until Hezekiah destroyed it because it had become an idol. Second Kings recounts this. Hezekiah removed the shrines, broke down the pillars cut down the sacred pole, and he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for them. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it, and it was called Neushtan. Modern archaeology has made links with this snake on a pole from the Old Testament to the great snake column, which is a bronze coiled pillar topped by three snake heads. This snake column has moved locations throughout its existence and spent a good amount of time in Constantinople and has changed religious traditions actually over the years. While it is highly unlikely that this great snake column is the same thing as Moses' snake on a pole, its characteristics do seem to be consistent with what we alluded to in the Second Kings passage. 
And it may have served later on as a symbol for multiple pagan traditions because snake cults were prevalent in that time. So we still really don't know what to make of this snake on a pole because all we know up until this point about snakes is that they are sly, especially to the woman in the Garden of Eden. Now, snakes did symbolize earthiness and renewal because they crawled along the ground and they shed their skin from time to time, giving them new life, if you will. But that's not the image that we found so far in this Old Testament story. In our English reading of the story, we are left with questions of how this devilish snake can even remotely represent God's healing abilities. But as I was confronted this week as I studied this passage and I bring to us today to consider, what if what was on top of that pole is not a traditional snake at all? You see, God told Moses to make a bronze seraph in Hebrew and put it on a pole. Seraph appears in the Old Testament nine times. And in the book of Deuteronomy, it is accompanied by the descriptor flying, though that notion is already implied in the Hebrew word. But the other main occurrence of this word appears in Isaiah and is translated into English as seraphim. And Isaiah 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Here's our word, seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called unto another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that same word, seraph, is, on, is what was on top of that pole. Now, the word literally means fiery serpent, as if it were poisonous or perhaps even on fire with God's power. But its usage in other parts of the Old Testament might suggest that it has a loftier meaning than simply a snake. Sure, maybe the reference in Isaiah was simply trying to reconcile this story in Numbers, but the image of a fiery creature portraying the presence of God as we see them surrounding the throne, does sound like a depiction of Yahweh in the Old Testament that would also be present here. Because it says that the God of the Israelites and the God of creation is there, is real and is present, even when they face death. Literarily, this bronze serpent served as a focal point, something to look at, to turn their gaze back to after they had strayed away from God. And if nothing else, it made that miserable food seem to be less of a problem. The Israelites realized what was most important to them, and that was life. They saw how much they clung to life, and they may have realized the sustaining value in that miserable food. And... The episode made them look at how they were living, and it brought back into harmony for them the relationship between life and death. Though they had been sentenced to death by poisonous snakes, they could look at the bronze snake 
and live. Essentially, if they stared death in the face, then they would live. So then would these angelic creatures be the same ones that appeared and bit the Israelites? Well, that answer is a bit more gray. Instead of the one word, seraph, that described the bronze serpent, there are now two words that described those creatures crawling on the ground. One of them, again, is seraph, and the other is nakash, which simply means a snake. And that's the word that we see in the Genesis account of creation when the serpent came to Eve. Two nouns seemingly insinuating opposing forces, both in the same creature, the seraphs flying around the throne, and also the nakash, the one that appeared as the devilish creature. A poisonous and fiery death, earthly and renewed living, juxtaposed in the snake of Numbers 21. It reminds me of the theory of Schrodinger's cat. It's a quantum mechanics theory brought to the knowledge of the general public by the popular TV sitcom, The Big Bang Theory. To spare you the gory details, let's just say that there is a cat in a box, and unless someone observes its aliveness, it can be thought of as both dead and alive at the same time. Aliveness and death are coexisting in the same moment because of the way that we would perceive that cat. Aliveness and death are happening in the same creature, the serpent, because of the way that Israel, the Israelites experiences it. This is the great paradox that envelops the Christian faith. Death to self and eventual death as humans yet abundant living and resurrection. It makes sense then to preface the most popular Bible verse and perhaps the best summary of the Christian faith, John 3.16, with this paradox from Moses' story. It says, Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the paradox is that this lifting includes him being hoisted up to death on a cross, and also him being raised into life through resurrection again. There is a death to self in repentance and surrender, and there is life abundant in the grace of the Lord. It's what I'm calling the cognitive dissonance of discipleship. How do we live in the tension of life and death? By death here, I'm meaning putting something to rest. Death as in letting the dust of our lives settle. How do we live a life that is full, robust, and spirit-filled with the abundance of ministry and community and love while simultaneously recognizing our duty as Christians to take up our crosses and follow Christ even unto death? Well, the gospel writer John suggests that death and life are bound together by love. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his son over in death so that we may have life 
It is through love that Christ was able to face death, death of human norms, and it brought about everlasting life. It was through the love of God that cared for the Israelites' well-being, where they could look death in the face and live. That is what we too have been called to through our commitment to Jesus Christ, that we can look death in the face and out of it life springs forth. We are called to bury our narcissism, political and social conformity, our self-imposed expectations, all for the sake of love. Put them all to rest. Let the dust settle and then look at the beautiful life that we've been given. It reminds me of a short story, something to help us in seeing this point. It's a story that I came across last year by Ken Liu, and it's entitled State Change. Now, before I go any further, I need to let you know that there are some elements that might be best suited for mature audiences if you go and read the full script. But in the story... A woman named Rena must maintain her soul, which is in the form of an ice cube in a cup. She has dozens of freezers at home, in her car, and at work, just so the ice cube cannot melt and destroy her soul. After a series of monotonous days, Rena decides to indulge in one last pleasure. But it would mean that her ice cube would have to be left out to melt but she decided it was worth the risk. And after she indulged, the story records this. She looked and looked frantically for a sliver of ice. Even the tiniest crystal would suffice. If she found it, she would keep it frozen and eke out the rest of her life on the memory of this one day. This one day when she was alive. But there was only water in the glass, clear, pure water. She waited for her heart to stop beating, and she waited for her lungs to stop breathing. But instead, she felt warm, inviting, and open. Something flowed into the coldest, quietest, and emptiest corners of her heart, and it filled her ears with the roar of waves. And in the end of the story, Rena sees that by losing her grip on her life the way she had planned it, she found freedom in the truest parts of herself. She needed to realize that life is not all about meticulously ordering one's life to somehow resemble abundance, but it is about death. And for her, seeing how letting go the fight for her own soul would actually bring about abundant life. It too can be a story for all of us. A story about our own surrenders. And maybe through surrendering, we can find true life through relationships, attentiveness, and love. What if this Lenten season, we are called to be a people not focused on how much we can squeeze out of life and to maintain a good supply of freezers so that we can keep our lives conveniently frozen in its current state. 
but rather, what if we are called to be a people cognizant of death and walk that path with Jesus toward the cross? It's a path where we may put our ice cubes out on the table in full exposure to warmer temperatures, and through the death of the silliness of our lives, we may live. Perhaps it's time to look at the clutter that fills up our days. Maybe it's a clutter of worry, worry that we may experience loss. Maybe it's a busy schedule that we have used to fill up our lives, that we desire to have abundant living, but it's only a synthetic attempt. Perhaps we're trying to fill the spaces of our lives so that we can just easily slip through this season And by doing so, we have neglected the art of dying well. Dying well is the process of letting the dust settle that we have kicked up in all of our activities. It's getting our affairs in order, if you will, of human community, of solidarity with creation, and of spiritual well-being as we journey. And to do so, we may savor the beauty of the moment, savor each prepared meal, each drive to work or to church, each phone call from a friend just saying hello, each hope, each victory, each smile. In dying well, we may reflect back on the ways that God has entered into our lives and made us fully alive. We may remember the ins and outs of the snakes that we have been bitten by and those flying, fiery serpents on a stick that have brought us healing and hope, even in our hopeless situations. And as we breathe in the fresh, no longer dusty air, may we remember the phrase that has gotten us to this point and will take us even to the point of death. For God so loved. There is life and there is death. God's Son lived, then died, then lived again, so that we may live once we die. May we this week have the courage to be stewards of living out the walk toward the cross just as Christ did, even through those losses we may face. And may we be people who are gifted at beautifully dying well. Amen.